Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. In this week's episode, we're talking about Tesla becoming a $100 billion company, Teladoc's new acquisition and what it means for the company, and why Warren Buffett is holding on to $128 billion in cash. So we were going to start off this episode uh, talking about Tesla and Elon Musk, but Rory, before that, you've some very important Baby Yoda news to update us on. Yeah, well, I, during on the New Year's Eve special, we made predictions for the year. Yeah. And my actual prediction, which is that Beyond Meat would drop 50%, hasn't been going very well. Yeah. <laughs> but my joke prediction that Long Baby Yoda would be a brilliant investment thesis for 2020 is going great because uh, Build a Bear stock, which was dead in the water before this, I think, like the company. I didn't even know they were publicly listed. Yeah, I mean, I looked at them ages ago. They're, I mean, they were, they're like a $40 million company. Like, they really, like, were small, 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 small cap. Yeah. But uh, their stock has gone up 62% since they announced that they are going to have a Baby Yoda doll <laughs> last week. So, uh, yeah. That's a that pretty pretty solid investment. The, yeah. the opening ripples of what I think is going to be mania. So, long-term <laughs> trend build, by Build-A-Bear. No, definitely <laughs> by Baby Yoda. Anything Baby Yoda related, you can you can set uh, set up a little uh, portfolio based Baby on that. Baby Yoda bubble. Yeah. Now, we, had, we had Bitcoin, we had weed. Now it's Baby Yoda. So yeah. rewind a bit. Is Baby Yoda only on the Mandalorian? Yeah, he's not in a movie. No, oh, right. and we don't even he's he's we don't even know if he is Yoda. In fact, I think he's not. Oh, I see. He's just <laughs> he's just a Yoda looking character that's very small. Uh, Jim Henson, RIP. Uh, it sounds like another Muppet. Is, is that approximately correct? Yeah. <laughs> We're like going to lose listeners over that comment. <laughs> to the ones still listening. <laughs> on with the show. <laughs> so, moving on to Tesla. Um, since the 1st of January, Tesla's stock has been on an incredible run, up 30%. Um, in the past year, it's, the stock has almost doubled. And the company now, this week, has hit a market cap of over $100 billion. This makes it the most valuable US car company of all time and the second most valuable global automaker just behind Toyota. So, um, Rory, what's driving this growth for Tesla? What's happened at the company that's that's pushing it up this much? What's driving this growth? <laughs> uh, well, look, there's actually quite a few different things going on um, in terms of like actually how the business is going. So, uh, you know, Model 3 deliveries are up uh, over so they had over three hundred thousand for the year, which was more than double what they had in the year before. Um, their total vehicle sales over the entire range is up fifty percent. They opened up a new factory in China, uh, which went from breaking ground to actually producing vehicles in twelve months, which wow. is um, which is pretty impressive. And that factory's already hit three thousand units per week, which is one hundred and fifty thousand cars a year. Um, if you're doing the math. Uh, it's actually cash flow positive for the last 12 months as well, which is a big turnaround from the year before where they were, you know, losing billions of dollars a quarter. Um, so, I mean, they actually got an upgrade recently. I can't remember what 
investment bank gave him the upgrade, but the upgrade was based on good execution, which is not something you typically associate no, with Elon Musk and Tesla. Yeah. Like they are typically the company that overpromises and underdelivers ad nauseum. Yeah. But they are firing at the moment on all cylinders and are bigger than Ford and GM combined. Um, Can we talk a minute for about the, the China factory? Because I think that's quite important. Obviously, you know, Tesla's perpetual problem has been production numbers but in opening that factory in China is there any advantages in terms of um, getting further into the Chinese market with having an actual factory in the country? Of course, that's why they opened it. (laughs) Uh, That was like part of the whole whole reason why, I mean, first of all China is a is the factory of the world, yeah. uh, as we know. Um, but yeah, having that, you know, that sh- that uh, factory opened in China, building the cars in China, has opened up a huge amount of opportunity for them. You know how the Chinese government are in terms of who they let operate in their space. And this was obviously, you know, has helped them uh, dramatically in terms of like tax breaks, in terms of like what they're allowed to do in the country. And um, yeah, it's going to be very positive for them, especially the speed that they got that factory up and running. And now they're, they're, trying to uh, do the same trick again in Germany, which is causing a few little issues in terms of there's some environmental concerns um, over there. But um, what's what seems to be happening now with Tesla Soccer, the reason it seems to have had such velocity is there's definitely what we call a short squeeze going on. Um, yeah, so, so maybe explain that a little bit more. So obviously the idea of shorting a stock is kind of betting against a stock. Yeah, it's betting against a stock, but the mechanics of it are a bit more complicated and I'm not going to get too dragged into the weeds of it, but essentially what you do when you, you short a stock is that you are borrowing a stock from another investor yeah. uh, and you're selling it to take the cash. Now, this is all theoretical. No, nothing's actually being changed. Nothing's actually changing hands in this scenario. But let's say a stock is at $500. I borrow it off another investor, sell it to someone for $500. But I have to return that stock to the original investor at some point. So if the stock price goes down, I get to buy it at the cheaper price and give it back. If the stock price goes up, I have to buy it at the more expensive price and yeah. get it back. So the, that's kind of the mechanics of shorting a stock. Yeah. And what happens in a short squeeze is let's say you have a heavily shorted company and Tesla. It was certainly a heavily shorted company. If the stock price goes up, you know, let's say there's some good news, a good earnings report or something, and the stock price goes up a bit, short sellers tend to get nervous. They want to exit their position. But because of the mechanics, they have to actually buy the stock. Okay. So they're not selling anything. They're buying something, which actually drives the stock price even higher. Yeah. And then you have this kind of chain reaction where more short sellers get more nervous and and something like a 10% bump, or let's say news that would typically result in like a 10% bump could lead to a 20 or 30% bump because there's all this additional buying trying to cover short positions. Yeah. And there's actually, if anyone wants to check in my Twitter account, there's an interesting graph which is Tesla's stock price uh, along with the percentage of the stock that was shorted and they basically just divulge over the last three (laughs) months where the amount of people shorting the stock has gone down rapidly while the amount of the stock price has gone up rapidly. So it's definitely an influence if a a company is heavily shorted, there's, there's definitely a, a correlation between that and when there is some good news received a, oh, a bump in price. Yeah, 100%. And there's, uh, you know, very contrarian investors will typically look for companies that are heavily shorted. Surely a very risky strategy. Very risky, but, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> It's, it's. I mean, if you think about it, it's probably less risky than shorting a stock because yeah. even though it's going to be much more volatile, the when you short a stock, you theoretically are opening yourself up to limitless losses. Yeah. So with the Tesla market cap crossing $100 billion, um, Elon Musk is in for a bit of a payday, is he? 
Not just yet, but yeah, it's looking that way. This was part of, so there's 12 tranches of uh, bonus options that he is going to receive based on performance. Uh, the first big one was crossing the $100 billion mark. Um, now he's not going to just get it. They're not writing a check tomorrow because he's crossed it. It has to stay there for a particular amount of time. I think it's one month. It has to be over uh, $100 billion for at least a month. Okay. And then has to, the six-month average has to be over $100 billion as well. So yeah. he's, he's not just getting it right now. But yeah, it's, it's the first of what would be a very um, lucrative uh, bonus package for him. So positive news, it appears, for Tesla. But Emmett, you... You signed up or you went on the waiting list for Tesla and you weren't overly impressed? No, well, we always, we're always an edge case here in Ireland yeah. and uh, the products that are rolling off the conveyor belt in California take a long time to get over to this island. So I put a deposit on Tesla three years ago uh, and still awaiting that product <laughs> and there's been quite a lot of uh, to and fro and I'm not going to diss Tesla here because apart from being a shareholder it's not really the forum or the format but uh, I mean there is one aspect of Tesla where I think it's miles ahead of the competition and it's in something that I studied in college 25 years ago I never actually saw a practical application of of this tech until now which is neural networks and um, like Tesla is now using data to build what I reckon will be the world's most sophisticated cutting-edge neural network. Now, a neural network, I'm going back 25 years, so I'm sure the definition of a neural network has absolutely improved. But basically what Tesla is doing is it's using AI, machine learning, to build a network that learns and continues to learn and improve its learning. So it's a system of sensors, data, communications, CPU, uh, peripheral hardware and software all working together that's collectively processing information and eventually learns like a human being. And um, I think that Tesla is absolutely, truly distinguished from all those other car manufacturers that it's so readily compared to because of this information it's gathered. Because it's it's getting real world miles, um, you know, out there from people just driving around, whether auto drive is on or not. So basically, if you're driving your Tesla, it is learning. And as, as Elon Musk said in Fortune a few months ago, he said, when one vehicle learns something, they all learn it. So there's a very powerful effect there happening in Tesla that I think uh, is really difficult to value at the moment because you don't know the true value of a technology until it's on your lap, until you actually feel it. But I just had a look at the numbers and uh, Tesla, whether autopilot is engaged or not, has had uh, 12 billion miles logged while wow. driving in its yeah. neural network. And that Waymo is something around 15 million miles. So when you look at the absolute data Tesla, the business, has gathered and not necessarily unleashed into a product just yet. Yeah. I think we're looking at something that justifies it being a $100 billion company. And, you know, I, I saw somebody tweet during the week and I retweeted the comparison of Tesla's valuation to all the other car manufacturers. And it stands out. I mean, it's towering above all the other ones. It's kind of shocked to see Aston Martin was only valued at $1 billion, like at the other end of the scale. But I think truly where Tesla will start to rise and continue to rise, I should say, far beyond the short squeezes of the world is the fact that it has a neural network that I don't think any other business can really compare to. Just on that, I remember there was um, a story I probably in the last two weeks about um, potential, the cars potentially uh, randomly accelerating. Did anyone see this? As yeah, I, I read something about that. So there was a, there was a couple of reports of the, of the cars randomly accelerating or, or sudden acceleration was... was uh, 
was what was being claimed and, and Tesla came out and said that this was a short attack and that they have no evidence to, to back this mm, up. Mm. But as someone rightly pointed out on one of the automotive message boards, like, well, if that is a problem, they'll just uh, update the software. Which is, in, when you think about that, yeah. that's incredible. It like is, you, there's, there's no mass recall. or yeah, no, which was, is it. Which was always one of the big risks was in, with yeah. um, investing in automobile companies was that they regularly did have these massive recalls which yeah. cost millions of dollars and, and really ruined the reputation of the company. Whereas Tesla just sends out an update yeah. over the internet. That's right. <laughs> it is absolutely amazing. So moving on to another stock in our shortlist, Teladoc last week announced that they had spent $600 million in acquiring a fellow leader in the virtual healthcare space, InTouch. The market has reacted favourably to this news, with Teladoc stock up some 20% since the news of the deal was announced. Um, this deal is expected to close by the end of 2020, but Rory, who are in touch and kind of what do they do and how do they exist kind of um, in the virtual healthcare space? Yes, they're inquiring this company called In Touch Health. I think the <laughs> full valuation or the full deal comes in at about $600 million, uh, which is a cash and stock deal. I think it's $150 million in cash and uh, the rest in stock, um, which is pricey because it's about seven times sales of that okay. company. Um, although, but you know, as uh, I think it was Jason Moser pointed out on Twitter, it's like a lot of it's with, they're paying a lot of it with stock, which is at all-time highs at the moment, which is essentially very cheap currency for them. So what it does is it adds 14,000 doctors and about 450 hospitals to the Teladoc platform. And the kind of, I think there was a bit of confusion about whether they were just another version of Teladoc. Yeah. Um, and they, there is similarities for sure. But what Teladoc were or their prime kind of market that they were going after was employers. So they were going to the big employers in America saying like, look, if you offer this uh, to your employees as an, as, a, as an option in their healthcare plan, uh, it'll cut down on your healthcare costs overall and it'll help in terms of absenteeism. You know, people don't have to take a day off to go to the doctor. They could do it, you know, they could talk to a doctor on their lunch break or they could talk to a doctor in the morning before they had to work and, and so this was kind of their sales pitch and yeah. they've, it's been operating very well for them um, which is why the stock's up I think like 200% since we added it at this point uh, In Touch were coming at it from a slightly different direction what they were doing was targeting hospitals and doctors offices themselves saying like look if you need to cut down on the wait times that you have in terms of you know uh, patients that are coming in regularly what you can do is we'll offer you the service where you can actually do it o over the internet and they won't be coming in clogging up your waiting room and basically become more efficient that way so what this now is is a strategic uh, acquisition where Teladoc are now trying to kind of broaden the yeah. range of what they can offer to people. Um, and it's not Teladoc's first acquisition either. Do they have kind of a, a kind of aggressive acquisition strategy and kind of, they're kind of trying to dominate the virtual healthcare market in general? Yes, I mean, they did, They purchased a company called Best Doctors a couple of years ago. Which, yeah. um, it's been a criticism that's been laid at Teladoc a couple of times now that they're just buying growth. Mm. Um, and that is something that we see with, with high growth companies especially the smaller ones that you know the organic growth starts slowing down and in order to keep the narrative going they start acquiring companies you know uh, mind body a couple of years was accused of it when they bought booker um eventbrite's been accused of it when they bought ticketfly and that integration didn't really go very yeah. well but uh, teledoc's growing perfectly well by itself these these acquisitions that they add on are yeah they really are kind of broadening the range of things that they can deal with in very the complementary space. to their core business yeah i think they're very complementary they're more kind of bolt-on acquisitions than than mm. trying to integrate them into the into the whole network itself um 
and you know, like as Teladoc pointed out, J.P. Morgan did some research on telemedicine. Some of forty percent of the hospitals they uh, surveyed said they intended to increase their telemedicine budgets over the next five years. So this deal does expose them to what is a growing industry. It's a it's a new industry for them in a, in a sense, but still in the same ballpark. Um, so yeah, it's the market loves it. Usually, the acquiring company gets a kind of smackdown when they make acquisitions because yeah. people are always worried about acquisitions. And we've said many times before, acquisitions typically destroy shareholder value. But so far, the market's reacting well, and Teladoc is has been on quite a run over the last couple of weeks. Roy, do you remember several years ago we looked at iRobot before it divested elements of its business and they had a robot that walked around yeah. meeting rooms <laughs> helping out. It's, yeah. It was an iPad on a, on a broom. Pretty much, yeah. Um, on, and, on one of those, uh, what are they called? The things you stand on? Yeah. Oh, Segway or... No, the, the ones yeah. that were really popular for, with kids about two Christmases ago. Oh, they hoverboard. 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 It, was a, it was a hoverboard <laughs> with a stick and an iPad attached. I thought you were talking about a pogo stick. <laughs> Here it comes. Well, do you know, did you, I had a look at the products that uh, Teladoc have bought basically through its acquisition and and did you know that in acquiring in touch Teladoc has now bought a whole range of robots so they have at the low end the low acuity stuff you know their iPads um, but in touch go all the way through to a range of robots a la iRobot back in the day uh, now I'm sure they're significantly more sophisticated uh, if I recall the oak that iRobot did correctly but Vita is their kind of high-end robot that has a you know surgeon a consultant surgeon at the other end but they they have quite an impressive array of complicated looking doctors on a stick (laughs) 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 and and, uh, (laughs) but it's interesting because Teladoc now has effectively through this acquisition gone into the hardware world now I don't know how big uh, a part of their world, it will be forevermore. But yeah, they that they, you'll have a look on their website and see there's a whole bunch of mechanical friends now have joined. Yeah, well, I, I, I think small it's part. It's, <laughs> it's quite clear, Emma, you're not a marketer, a doctor on a stick. Um, <laughs> did you ever remember? I'm probably the only one who remembers the TV show called Book Rogers in the 25th century. No, but yeah. I know the His reference. best friend was Tweedy. Um, <laughs> some of them remind me of the little robot Tweedy in Book Rogers. <laughs> so before we move on, I just want to talk about some of the great stuff we have in the My Wall Street app at the moment. Already this year, we've added our brand new Stock of the Month report, a new stock addition to our market-beating shortlist, and over 10 new insights written by our analyst team here at My Wall Street. We've also launched a brand new feature exclusively for subscribers to My Wall Street this month, the Stock of the Month podcast. This is where you can listen as Rory and I delve deeper into the most recent Stock of the Month report and answer some community questions about why we picked this particular stock. January's episode is already live in the My Wall Street app at the moment, so make sure to log in and check it out. Uh, Emmett, next we're doing company we never talk about. What company do you want to talk about this week? This week we're going to talk about a company everybody knows, which is Starbucks. Yeah. One we never talk about. But rather than just, you know, kind of uh, regurgitate a whole bunch of numbers about Starbucks, I thought we'd have a little quiz. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to give you five facts about Starbucks. And the two of you have to listen carefully and decide, is it true or false? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're going to lowball. The first one's an easy one. In Starbucks, coffee masters wear blue aprons. True or false? False. Uh, True. The correct answer is, in Starbucks, coffee masters wear black aprons. So one nil to Roy. Roy, did you know they wear black aprons? 
I just knew they didn't wear blue aprons. I'd never seen anyone in a blue yeah, apron in true. Starbucks. I'm not sure what it means. I mean, what do you need to do to become one of the owners of a black apron? Is it swim like, you know, 50 lengths of a swimming pool full of coffee or what do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> How probably do you probably not that. <laughs> probably not that. Okay, fact number two. Starbucks has its own movie studio. True. True. I don't know, actually. I do know it has its own sound label called Hear Music. I don't think it has its own movie studio. That's why I thought they might. Yeah, they have their own record label called Hear Music. They definitely got into some sort of like producing their own original content, like every yeah, other co- company correct. in the world. But Well, they actually have artists I've heard of, um, such as Paul McCartney, James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. Really? Yeah. But no Pre Malone or any of them. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Starbucks has a record label called Hear Music. Okay, so um, despite me kicking this quiz off, I can't absolutely tell you how you scored on that one because I don't believe they have a movie studio. Let's say we were wrong. Yeah, we'll say, okay, so it's 1-0. So uh, Starbucks, the name Starbucks derives from an Emily Bronte book called Wuthering Heights, False. one of the characters. False. Correct. It is actually the first mate in Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick, as I'm pretty sure you both knew anyway. So we're 2-1 to Rory. Fact number four, Starbucks only has three concepts for its stores. And don't worry, it's not a number question. Does it have concept stores, I guess is the question. And yeah, they had, a, they had a rotisserie one at one point. Mm. So I'm going to say true. Yeah, true. Well, you're both right. But what's interesting is they actually have secret shops. Uh, for example, one called Roy Street Coffee and Tea in Seattle, and it sells things far beyond beer, such as wine, uh, beer, gourmet cheeses uh, that can't be mass produced. So okay. they actually use a range of secret shops for testing out concepts and see how okay. well they're going to how well they're going to go. And the final question uh, in our quiz is: Has Starbucks ever been sued for underfilling its cup? <laughs> Yeah, I'd say it definitely has been. Yeah, it has to be true. In 2006, two people from Northern California filed a class action lawsuit after suggesting that Starbucks has a system that means lattes are 25% smaller than menu claims. I think I read that, or there was one definitely, and it was about the ice lattes or something, and some guy, he like took out the ice, yeah. and then when the ice was out, it was below what they yeah. were advertising. And well, like, the lawsuit <laughs> was dismissed, you'll be pleased to know. So um, I think on that round, Rory takes the golden coffee cup. So let's talk about Starbucks as a business for a moment. It, it is one of those stocks, I was thinking about it this morning, that I think you could safely just buy it and forget about it for the rest of your life. Yeah. it It's an indestructible brand. It has a dividend yield, 1.8% at the moment. Um, it opens, it's opening around 600 stores annually in China at the moment, where it saw 4% growth there last year. Like, it's a business that will just keep going. Yeah. It's in the same category, as we all know, as Disney and, and Diageo. And it offers a product that people won't, uh, you know, grow sick of. It's not that it's sugar-based. It's not that the world is going to come out with some coffee facts that we don't like. So, um, yeah, I think Starbucks is a wonderful, very long-term investment. It's one yeah. of those things that can just sit at the bedrock. And as you said, it's, it's such a kind of well-known brand that it's often quite Around here, we we quite we kind of forget about it sometimes. Yeah, and we forget it's there, and it's it's up seventy percent since we picked it, which isn't yeah, isn't incredible growth, but it's still pretty impressive. Well, this is it; it's safe, solid growth. And their CEO Kevin Johnson is a tech guy. He's the former CEO of Juniper Networks. He worked at Microsoft, and he you know he's bringing that view that you, we walk into McDonald's, you'll see that mostly now you have to order 
through giant touchscreens and yeah. the modernization, the tech uh, drive behind businesses is there. And to have a CEO who like is building the future of the business around technology, investing in its app rewards program, mobile order and pickup and delivery, that technology is the driving force behind so many businesses. You would think that a traditional business like Starbucks, which mm. takes coffee beans in the back door and hands them out the front door in the form of a hot drink, isn't all that tech, but it's absolutely tech-enabled business. So I think yeah. they have a good CEO. I think they have a great product, an indestructible brand, pays a dividend, it's growing. Um, and while we never talk about it, it's very often, uh, there's not a whole lot to say about some of our companies. They're just wonderful, long-term bedrock businesses. And I think Starbucks is one of them. Isn't there a great story about the um, founder, Howard Schultz, and why Starbucks don't serve hot sandwiches? It was something like he went into a store once and there was a, a really bad smell of burning cheese or something. Oh, I've heard that as and, well, yeah. Yeah, I can't yeah, remember details yeah. and it was that it was yeah. kind of I read that overcoming piece, yeah. the smell of coffee and he yeah. just, well, probably not straight away, but that was that's why they don't serve hot kind of sandwiches and stuff anymore because it should be the smell of coffee. I was quite surprised with that um, when they brought in your man as the CEO. I know he'd been there for quite a while, but I'd, I would have bet big money that they were going to take um, Mary Dillon. Mary Dillon, yeah, yeah exactly. We she, had that debate. The Ulta CEO, because she'd yeah. been put on the board yeah. just about a year ago, but yeah. uh, maybe in the future. And loyalty and uh, rewards programs are... Her bread and butter. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly, yeah. Did we have a debate here in the podcast about Mary Dillon becoming the next CEO? If not, it was downstairs anyway. Yeah. We had a chat about it. Uh, coffee, according to Wikipedia, uh, Kaldi, the ninth century Ethiopian goat herd discovered coffee when he noticed how excited his goats became after eating the beans from a coffee plant. <laughs> now that's a proven product. Now, what other podcast would you hear that on? <laughs> <laughs> so hats off, this de- this issue is dedicated to Kaldi, the ninth century Ethiopian goat herd. Uh, so that is Starbucks, the company we never talk about. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, to Jargon Busters. Um, And the first question we have this week is from Stefan through the My Wall Street app. And he asked, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is reportedly holding some $128 billion in cash at the minute. When is it appropriate for an individual investor to hold cash? Emmett, I'll throw that over to you. The thing, comparing, I suppose, looking at Warren Buffett, Mm. uh, hoarding cash, as it's called, which I don't think is a very appropriate definition. He he famously said cash is a bad investment. Yes, it is a bad investment. And the the problem that Warren Buffett and Berkshire has is deploying vast billions of of dollars is not an easy job. I know it's a quality problem, but it's not an easy job. When you bring it down to us mere mortals... um, I think different laws of of investing apply, and and in fact, calling it a law is too rigid. I think I have personally never been more than five percent in cash, and what I mean by that is in twenty something years, twenty five years at least, um, my portfolio has never had more than five percent cash in it, and that's not me proclaiming that that is the right strategy. But you're either investing or you're not. And, yeah, uh, I think most people will have the cash partition in their mind and something else, a bank account. And that's what they use to keep their life on the road and pay their bills and their rent and buy their lunch. And then in your stock investing portfolio, we're in it to invest for the long term and never sell. So I I understand the question is coming from the fact that we're at the tail end of a 10 plus year bull market. And that is a logical question. And I've asked myself that question a lot. I don't, so I don't, 
personally have the insight to say, yeah, one should go into cash now. Mm. But I am of the mind that uh, if you're investing, you invest, you find great businesses now. And you hopefully have the resources to find more cash if they go on sale. Yeah. Because I don't have the precise number at the moment, but if you miss the top 10 days in a decade of investing, your returns are going to be significantly reduced. Yeah. Um, we can get that fact another time, but it's incredible that in 10-year period, if you're out of stocks on the 10 best days, your CAGR will actually be uh, significantly eroded. Yeah. So, um, looking at Warren Buffett, yeah, he cash is a bad investment because inflation decreases its spending power. I do believe people should have some cash on the sideline, but it's quite a personal decision and yeah there's no absolute magic formula what do you what do you think Roy and um, I think for like well first of all for the last five years that we've been doing this yeah people have been saying sure there's a recession coming yeah like you know yeah. it's like yeah that's it, five years you would have missed out on if you'd exactly so like it's even now when you look at like oh yeah it's been the greatest bull run of all time and we're a 10 year you know without a single recession that's not how markets work they don't operate yeah, they don't yeah. follow a schedule yeah. so yeah it might it might feel like it's right about to hit you know yeah. bottom out or, or, or hit the ground but like it sitting on the sidelines yeah. is is you're, you're going to lose more money yeah. by or you're going to lose much more opportunity by sitting on the sidelines waiting for this day to happen if you if yeah. you believe 5 years ago there was going to be a recession look at the amount of money look at the amount of money you left on the table like um yeah. Warren Buffett just has always had this problem he's mm. like free you know when i was reading his autobiography he used to have or not his autobiography sorry it was um who wrote the really good one uh, the like, snowball yeah um I can't remember his name. No, not Snowball. The other one. Oh, um, Making of American Ma- Capitalist. Yeah. Roger Lowenstein. Lowenstein. Yeah, um, you know, back in the 1980s, they were having trouble deploying cash because they had so much of it that they'd have to find huge companies to invest in. They couldn't invest small amounts in small companies because it wouldn't have any impact on their yeah. on their bottom line. So they've always had that problem. I reckon he's hoarding cash because he's got a big acquisition target in mind. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So moving on then, another question we got in is from Killian and he asked, why is Pinterest not in your showroom? Rory, I know you've been looking at Pinterest recently. So I'll throw this over to you. Yeah, I really like Pinterest. Pinterest mm. is a very interesting company and um, you know they they're a niche product def not but like not necessarily niche in terms of a small market opportunity they've got a huge audience but it's very kind of specialized and yet people love it and um, their target demographic is the one that everyone is after this 70 percent of the u- users are female uh 34 of them are in that 18 to 29 year old age bracket which is really powerful for advertisers that is who they want to be targeting and um, and you know they're growing. They're still growing really fast. You know, there's they had thirty seven percent increase in international monthly active users in the last year, up to two hundred and thirty five million people. Um, and I saw somewhere I I couldn't get this uh, fact verified, but forty two percent of U.S. adult women use Pinterest. Wow. Which is just it's insane like, numbers, like, mm. and also there's something I really like about Pinterest, and this kind of I'll take on a, a kind of side story here, but there's a book I read maybe two years ago called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and he talks about uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to Target, the big retailer, and how about 15, 20 years ago they became absolutely obsessed with customer data. It became their number one strategy for building the business, and they went out and hired some of the best data scientists they could right out of college promised them huge amounts of money and said look if you want to study data we are going to find so much data on the American consumer you won't know what to do it yourself and the reason they wanted to do this was because they 
figured out that they were had these coupons that they were sending out and they wanted to be able to like target each individual uh, yeah. customer with the coupons that were going to align with what they were going to buy and they became really really good at it like the, and the one thing they really wanted or the 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 kind of holy grail for the data scientists working for target was to find out when people were pregnant and the reason really this was like they had whole teams dedicated to trying to figure out this puzzle how do you find out when one of your customers is pregnant and they got so good at it that they were figuring out that their customers were pregnant like a week after they found out wow that's how the subtle changes in how people were shopping alerted them to that and the reason they wanted to know that information was because they knew psychologically people tend to spend a huge amount of money when they're going through big life changes. If they're moving house or getting married or having a kid or changing job, that's when you start spending big amounts of money on things and that's when habits start forming. Yeah. So if they could find out when people are pregnant, they could send out mm. coupons for the things that they were going to need <laughs> for pregnancy and that would get them into Target and that would start a lifetime habit of coming to Target for those specific mm. things. This was, the, the, the books really delves in into much deeper detail into this but they were so good at it that one day this father came in and started shouting at a store manager because he was like what are you doing sending my young daughter uh, coupons for pregnancy stuff stuff to do with <laughs> wow, pregnancy yeah. and he ended up calling the store manager back the next day to apologise having had a conversation with his young daughter oh, and God. found out that yes she was <laughs> oh, wow. indeed pregnant <laughs> Wow! so the reason I went off on that little tangent there is because Pinterest the way it's set up it's 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 there for people when they're doing major life changes. It's mm. people use it for planning their wedding, uh, redecorating their house, um, moving to another. Like this is where they they use Pinterest for. It's a kind of a scrapbook of ideas, a mood board, if you will. So I do like Pinterest quite a lot. The one problem I have with Pinterest is they haven't proven in any way the ability to monetize their international users. Um, and that's not normally a massive concern. We know that international users are typically not as valuable as US users, especially from an advertiser's point of view. Um, but the discrepancy between pin- in Pinterest is just really, really big. And I use the example of their ARPU, which is their average revenue per user. Um, in Pinterest's case, this difference is just so stark that it's like they don't even have an international business at all yet. Yeah. Uh, so, example, last quarter, they made $2.93 per US user. For international users, which is a much larger amount of people, it was 13 cents. Wow. Now, that's that's more than double what it was for the international users from the same period last year, but it's still way too low. It's yeah, like, massive you know, discrepancy. they haven't yeah. proven that they can have, mm. any, they have any international business yet whatsoever. Yeah. If they do, or if we see signs that they do, it would definitely be a stock I'd like to add. Yeah, very interesting. So, to the three of us then, because I read their IR deck, their investor relation deck as well, Roy, and, and my read on it was there was no identifiable trend, positive trend in their key metrics they, they called out. And I spoke to a couple of friends who use Pinterest. And what I got was that they there's now new competing websites for niche needs. So, for example, for the home, there's House. And House is the mood board for the house. So I landed on the same question we were asked, which mm. is, why don't we have Pinterest? Yeah. You know, just, in my Wall Street. Yeah. And Rory and I said about our research. And so here's the question. Would you buy shares in Pinterest? Well, like, as I just said, not yet. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the business. I think yeah. it's, 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 they're doing something different. They're yeah. doing something that, you know, isn't, Mark Zuckerberg is not going to be able to just come in and totally replicate their business. Yeah. They've got a really loyal base they of do, users. Yeah. And 
people seem to love the product. So yeah. um, I yeah. like it as a business. I just think your, if they could, your if watch, they, your if watch they could show some traction in international, yeah. if they get that ad business up and running, I'd be quite happy doing that. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I was quite dismissive of them. I think when I first kind of, I'd always known of Pinterest, and when they first went to market, I was a bit dismissive. But you know. As Rory said, when you see mm. that engagement they have with that niche demographic, I, I think it's yeah. pretty incredible. If you saw some international growth, you'd be you'd be jumping mm. on that. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's about it for today's Stock Club. We don't have time for the elevator pitch this week, but tune in in two weeks' time where Emmett and Rory pitch the stock that they think has the potential to become a 10-bagger or grow tenfold in value. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch. You can catch us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too. And if you're enjoying it, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. That's it from us. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.